0: Well, today we're going to be considering an account from the life of Jesus found in John chapter 11 that I find to be especially instructive, helpful, challenging, and encouraging all rolled into one. And of course, there's enough content in John chapter 11 for months of sermons. So what I really want to do this morning is just focus on a few details from the account in John 11 And hopefully draw some lessons and applications from it. But before we get to John 11 itself, I want to remind you this morning of two absolutely foundational principles that we have to keep in mind whenever we read an account from the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And the first one is this, that Jesus Christ is the highest, the brightest, the clearest revelation to us of what God is like. Let me say that again that Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, is the brightest and clearest, the fullest revelation to us of what God is like. The single most important question that a person can ask is Does God exist? Does he exist? But as soon as you answer the existence question, the next question that you have to ask becomes extremely urgent namely, what is God like? What is he like? It's one thing to say, yes, God exists, but if the God who exists is ruthless and selfish and loveless and joyless, then it would be better if he didn't exist at all in the first place, right? So how can we find out what he is like? And the answer is, we can't find out what he's like. He's holy. He's the creator. We're the creature. And there is an infinite gap between the creator and the creature. He's holy, 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 totally other, totally separate from his creation. We can't find out what God is like unless he condescends to our level and speaks to us and tells us what he is like. That's the only way we can find out anything about him. And that's exactly what he has done. He's revealed himself himself. Through creation, first of all, Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. They're telling, speaking of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Romans 1, since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. So God has revealed Himself to us through His creation, just simply through what He's made. The creation itself speaks to us of what He's like. But He's also revealed Himself even more clearly through His Word, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. The Apostle Paul said that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. It's an incredible word. The Word of God was breathed out by God in order to reveal God to us. It's God-breathed, and it's an expression of His very character. But not all parts of the Bible are equally detailed and clear when it comes to God revealing Himself to mankind. His revelation was progressive. It took place in stages, like a sunrise over the horizon. It starts off, there's just a little sliver of light. You can see the sun coming up, and then it's a little bit more... And a little bit more, until the full sun has arisen, blazing forth light and revelation. And beloved, it's no accident that in Luke chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ is called the sunrise from on high. That's a title for the Lord Jesus, the sunrise from on high. Because it's in the Lord Jesus Christ that God has revealed himself in the fullest and clearest way imaginable listen to hebrews chapter one god after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways talking about the old testament god spoke to those people through prophets and so on but then hebrews one says this in these last days he's spoken to us in his son you see that he's making a contrast here In these last days, He's spoken to us in His Son, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, of His character, what He is like. John one eighteen: no one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Jesus needs to explain God to you for you to understand, for you to see what God is like. So I say again that Jesus is the brightest and clearest revelation to us of what God is like. So anytime we read an account from the life of Christ in the Gospels, we have to keep that in mind. To see him is not simply to see a first century Jewish man. To see how a first century Jewish man lives. That's not what it is. To see him is to see what God is like in the brightest and clearest way imaginable. He has explained him by his words, by his actions, by his attitudes, by his movements, by the very way that he moved among people. He explains him. So the first foundational principle then this morning is that we have to keep in mind that the Lord Jesus Christ is the brightest, clearest revelation to us of what God is like. And the second foundational principle is this that the Jesus seen in John 11, or anywhere else in the Gospels for that matter, but we're looking at John 11 this morning, the Jesus seen in John 11 is the same Jesus who is seated right now on the throne of the universe, reigning and ruling as our great high priest and as our king. It's the same Jesus. Turn it to Acts chapter 1. I love this little kind of jewel of a side note here in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. You'll remember Jesus is teaching his disciples here. This is after his resurrection. He appears to his disciples. He's teaching them. And then in verse 9 it says, And after he had said these things, that is Jesus, after Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up. While they were looking on, he was lifted up right out of their sight. And and it says, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, that's the disciples now. They're looking up. Jesus had just been exalted. The The disciples are standing there gazing. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, apparently angels, something like that. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Now notice this. This Jesus, the very one that they had just been talking to, right? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now what's the point? The point is is that the same Jesus that goes up into heaven is the same Jesus who is going to come down from heaven at the end of time to bring an end to this age. You see, it's the same Jesus. The same one that goes up is the same one that comes back down to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. So in between the time, it's the same Jesus. He's the same Jesus. That's the point. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, why is this important? Because we're not living 2,000 years ago. That's why it's important. We're not living at the time when jesus walked physically on the earth we're living right now we're living in 2013 and we need to know what jesus is like right now we need to know what he's like right here where we're at if he is the exalted king who rules over every particle and person from his throne in heaven then we need to know what he is like what kind of ruler is he if he's the great high priest who we should fly to in time of need then we need to know what he is like. What kind of a high priest is he right now? If he's the Savior of mankind who every person here this morning is invited to embrace, then we need to know what kind of Savior he is. What is he like? And thankfully, we don't have to guess at the answers to these questions because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can be absolutely certain, therefore, that whatever aspects of Christ's person and character that we see today in John chapter 11, whatever we see about Him in John chapter 11, we can be absolutely sure that those very things are still true of Him right now as He rules and reigns from His throne at the Father's right hand. He's the same Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, keeping those two things in mind, then, Let's turn to John chapter 11. And before we look at some specifics here, I just want us to get a general overview of the chapters. We're going to do quite a bit of reading here at first. But it's important to do this. We need to get a kind of a big picture view of things before we look at the particulars. So starting in verse 1 of John chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick. "'Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. "'It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment "'and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick.'" So you get the picture, this is a family. Mary, Martha, they were sisters. Their brother Lazarus was the one who was sick. "'So the sisters sent word to him,' that is Jesus, "'saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick.'" But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to, his, to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. So Jesus shows up in Bethany, and then Lazarus' sister Martha runs out to meet him. So skip down to verse 21. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. So then Lazarus's other sister, Mary, <laughs> runs out to meet Jesus Skip to verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She says the exact same thing that Martha said. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now, this is an amazing and, I would say, shocking passage of Scripture. and I think you'll see why I say that here in a second. We begin by learning that Lazarus is sick. And Lazarus' sisters knew Jesus well enough to know that he was the only one who would be able to help Lazarus. And so they send word to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So we learn that Jesus has a special love for Lazarus. He whom you love, Lord, he whom you love is sick. Special love for him, right? Right. Lazarus is a close, personal friend of the Lord. But not only that, Jesus apparently has a special love for this entire family. Notice again in verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You see? Special love for this entire family. But here's where it gets shocking. Notice in verse 6, So when he heard that he was sick, He then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Do you hear that? Jesus hears that Lazarus is deathly ill, so he takes off immediately and goes heals Lazarus. Right? No. He stays right where he is for two more days. It's not exactly the 911 response that Martha and Mary were looking for. But notice also what comes out here if you put verses 5 and 6 together. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he loved. Where he was, sorry. Jesus loved, so he stayed. You see that? Because he loved them, he stayed where he was. In other words, it was because Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus that he stays put and lets Lazarus die. And if that's not shocking enough, look at what Jesus says to the disciples who are traveling along with him in this account. Look at verse 14. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Jesus is glad? Lazarus died. That's what he says, right? I'm glad I wasn't there. Does that sound like the Jesus that you know? What's going on here? And, of course, we know how the story ends. Martha runs out to meet Jesus. Mary runs out to meet him. And they both say the exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Probably, maybe somewhat of a rebuke, possibly. It's like, Lord, where were you? Why weren't you here? If you had been here, you wouldn't have died. Then Jesus makes his way to the tomb. Lazarus is raised from the dead after being in the grave four days. Now, how does this portion of Scripture apply to us? What are we supposed to learn from this? And I want to submit to you this morning that what we really see here in John chapter 11 is a picture, it's an illustration, of how trials and tribulations function in the life of the Christian. In Acts chapter 14, Paul says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations. Every Christian through many tribulations. Again, in John 16, Jesus says, in the world you have tribulation. He doesn't say in the world you might have tribulation. He just says in the world you have it. You have tribulation. It's just a fact. It's just a part of the Christian life. It's the unavoidable reality of living as a Christian in a fallen world. You have tribulation. But here in John 11, we get a glimpse behind the curtain, as it were, In John 11, we move beyond the simple fact that trials and tribulations happen to the Christian, and we move into the realm of the who and the how and the why of trials and tribulations. Who is behind these trials, ultimately? How are they brought into our lives, and why are they brought into our lives? And even though we need to be careful of coming up with some kind of one-size-fits-all explanation for each and every trial that we face, at the same time, I think there are some, some basic lessons brought, brought out here in John 11 that can help us to think more biblically and more faithfully about any trial that we face, tribulations, trials that we have faced, are facing, and will face throughout our lives. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time then this morning is consider five of these Lessons with you, five lessons that we can glean from this passage of Scripture, specifically as it relates to the place, the function of trials and tribulations in the life of the believer. The first one is this, that Jesus is in control of our life circumstances. He's in control of them. Jesus could have left immediately when he heard that Lazarus was sick. He could have. But he didn't. Martha and Mary were right. If he had been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died. They were right. But the fact is, is that Jesus wasn't there. And he wasn't there by his own choosing. He stayed where he was by his own choosing. And the bottom line for us here is that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to allow things to come into our lives that are not very pleasant. And when those things come in, we dare not think that they've come into our lives because somehow Jesus dropped the ball. That's not the case. It's the exact opposite of that. They've come into our lives precisely because He's in control. And He's bringing these things into our lives for a purpose. A good purpose. A loving purpose, as we'll see here As we go on, so the first lesson here is that Jesus is in control of our life circumstances. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, he works all things after the counsel of his will. Second lesson this morning is that Jesus' timing is not our timing. One person said Jesus is always late. That's probably a bit of an overstatement, but it gets the point across. He's always late. Here's Lazarus on the brink of death, so Jesus waits two days before leaving to go to him. He just waits. And isn't that what we see so often in our own lives? We find ourselves in the midst of a difficult time, and so we pray something like this. Lord, I need help, and I need it now, right now. And the Lord says, okay, I'll be there in a few days. I'll be there in a week. Give me a couple of months. Many times that's how it is. Jesus will wait until the situation gets even worse. And then He'll show up. In this way, He can get all the more glory for triumphing over the trial, the tribulation, the struggle. And we can learn lessons of patience, long-suffering, and faith. Lessons that we would not learn if Jesus catered to us like some kind of genie in a bottle who is just right there to pop out whenever we need him to answer a wish at the drop of a hat. See, if that's the case, you don't learn patience. You don't learn long-suffering. You don't learn to walk by faith and not by sight, if Jesus is a genie. But he's not. His timing is not our timing. From our perspective, it might seem like he's always late, but from his perspective, he's never late. And I thought of that quote from the Fellowship of the Ring at the very beginning when Gandalf speaking to Frodo there, a wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Right? And Jesus always arrives precisely when he means to. Always. But it's often the case that his timing is not what we would prefer. Third lesson, Jesus' timing is motivated by his love. His timing is motivated by his love. And we saw this earlier in the connection between verses 5 and 6. It was because Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus that he stayed where he was and allowed Lazarus to die. Now, that cuts across the grain of a lot of so called Christian teachers today who want people to believe that it's always God's will for you to be happy and healthy, to have your best life now, right? Apparently, Lazarus missed the memo on that one because his best life now meant getting sick and dying. And contrary to what these false teachers will tell you, Lazarus did not get sick and die because he didn't have enough faith. He got sick and died because Jesus loved him and his family, So much. That's why he died. Jesus' timing here was motivated. It was driven. It was directed by his love for Lazarus and his family. But this doesn't just cut across the grain of false health and wealth teaching, but it also flips one of the most common objections people make to Christianity right on its head. (laughs) What do people say? If God really is loving then he would not allow bad things to happen to people, right? That's what people say all the time. If God was really loving, he wouldn't allow bad things to happen to people. But do you see how Jesus just completely inverts that whole thing right here? In John 11, it's precisely because God is loving that he allows difficult things to happen to people. It's the exact opposite of that objection. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he stayed two days longer. Now, that's not an easy pill to swallow, but it's right there on the face of the text. It was because he loved them that he stayed. And we need to be reminded of this, beloved, because when we're in the midst of difficult times... Usually the first temptation that comes in is the temptation to doubt God's love. If he loves me, why is this happening? Right? And Jesus' response to us is, you've got it the exact wrong way. It's precisely because I love you that this is happening. This is exactly what we sing about in the hymn Day by Day, isn't it? Listen to these words. Day by day... And with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials. Here, it's talking about trials. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment. He's sovereign over our trials. I've no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure. You see what the writer is saying here? The pain... Where does it come from? It comes from he whose heart is kind beyond all measure. Yes. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. And then in the last stanza, help me, Lord, when toil and trouble meeting, heir to take as from a father's hand. Right? Toil and trouble coming to you right from the hand of a father. Help me, Lord, when toil and trouble meeting, heir to take us from a Father's hand, one by one, the days, the moments fleeting, till I reach the promised land. That's John 11 right there. Heir to take us from a Father's hand. Our toils and troubles come from the hand of our Heavenly Father, from the hand of the one whose heart is kind beyond all measure. Behind our trouble and suffering is a heart motivated by love. And that's exactly what we see here in John chapter 11. Jesus' timing is motivated by his love. Another way to look at it is this. Because Jesus loves us, he desires what's best for us, right? Isn't that what love does with a person? It desires what's best for them. But according to Jesus, what is best for us is obviously not the complete absence of suffering. Right? Isn't that obvious? What is best for us is obviously not the complete absence of suffering in our lives, or we wouldn't have any. Because he's sovereign. He can control that. No, the trials, tribulations, and suffering serve a higher purpose. They are the tools that our loving Lord uses to strengthen our faith and to show us his glory. Which leads us then to the fourth lesson this morning. Number four. If we stick with Jesus through the trials, our faith will be strengthened and we will see the glory of God. Remember what Jesus told his disciples back in verse 14. We read it. Let's read it again. So Jesus then said to them plainly, he's talking to his disciples who are following him about. Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Now Jesus obviously wasn't glad about Lazarus' death as a thing in itself. He doesn't take any pleasure. He's not sadistic in that sense, take any pleasure as a thing in itself, but he was glad to have the opportunity to use Lazarus' death and ultimately his resurrection as a means to strengthen the disciples' faith. Notice again in verse 15 I am glad, what? For your sakes. He didn't didn't just say, I'm glad Lazarus died. He says, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. And we see the fulfillment of this after Lazarus is raised, don't we? In verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. So I say again that if we stick with Jesus through the trials, our faith, Will be strengthened. And don't think for a minute that this wasn't a trial for Jesus' disciples, this whole event. Obviously, it was a trial for Lazarus, (laughs) first of all. It was a trial for Martha and Mary, but it was a trial for the disciples too, who followed Jesus. Now, how so? Put yourself into the shoes of the disciples here for a minute. Over and over again, they had seen firsthand how the love and kindness of Jesus overflowed in unhesitating mercy towards people in need. Just think of the book of John itself. John chapter 2, they run out of wine at the wedding in Cana. Jesus makes more wine, no problem. After talking with a Samaritan woman in John 4, there's a bunch of Samaritans come to Jesus from the city. They ask him to stay with them. No problem, stays two days. At the end of John 4, a nobleman pleads with Jesus to heal his son. So Jesus heals him with a word. No problem. Then he heals the man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5. He feeds the 5,000 in John 6. And he heals a man born blind in John 9. All without hesitation. And the disciples are witnessing all of that firsthand. But then you come to John 11... And the disciples are standing there as a messenger rushes up to Jesus, saying that his friend Lazarus is sick and needs his help. And Jesus, who had never hesitated before when somebody needed help, suddenly hesitates and waits two days. And rather than rush off to help Lazarus, which is probably what the disciples were expecting him to do, rather than rush off to help Lazarus, he stays put and lets Lazarus die. And the disciples surely must have been wondering, what in the world is going on here? What is Jesus doing? This isn't like Jesus to do this. Doesn't he love Lazarus and his family? Why doesn't he go and help them? I mean, it must have been a severe trial to the faith of the disciples to witness this. It was a trial to their understanding of Jesus' character. It seemed out of character for him. But what the disciples didn't realize at the time was that Jesus had everything under control. In fact, he was going to get this. In fact, Jesus was going to use the very thing that was such a trial to the faith of the disciples to actually strengthen their faith by raising Lazarus from the dead as they looked on in awestruck wonder. The very thing that was such a trial to their faith he turns it around and uses it as a very thing to strengthen their faith. They stuck with Jesus in the midst of the trial, even when they didn't understand exactly what he was doing or why. You know, why did he let Lazarus? This seems weird. Why didn't he go? You know, they didn't understand. They didn't know. But because they stuck with him, their faith ended up being strengthened in the end. And if we stick with Jesus in the midst of the trials, we'll find our faith being strengthened as well as we follow him, even when we don't understand at the time exactly what he's doing and why he's doing it. The hymn from William Cooper says it well, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. As we follow Jesus through the suffering, he will make things plain to us, regarding the what and the why questions. And when he does, our faith will be strengthened. And the disciples must have been bewildered as to what he was doing, why he was doing it when he let Lazarus die. But when Lazarus came out of that tomb, when Jesus manifested his glory and said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came lumbering out of that tomb, they got it then. They understood what he was doing. And their faith was strengthened because they saw the glory of Jesus manifested. Which leads into the second part of this. Secondly, if we stick with Jesus through the trials, we will not only find our faith strengthened, but we will also get to see the glory of God. Look again at what Jesus tells Martha, starting in verse 39. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe You will see the glory of God. Remember, Jesus loved Martha. He loved her. And he loved her so much that he lets her brother die in order to give her something even greater than a healthy sibling. Namely, a special revelation of his glory in raising Lazarus from the dead. Yes, Martha gets her brother back, but that's not Jesus' ultimate gift to her. If getting Lazarus back was the main thing, then Jesus wouldn't have let him die in the first place. Right? And the people there got this. Look at verse 37. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? It's like, why did he let him die in the first place? We know he can do miracles. Of course he could have of course he could have kept him from dying but jesus wanted to do something greater and more loving for martha than simply heal her brother he wanted to show martha his glory the ultimate gift that martha received was a revelation of the glory of god in the person of jesus christ And if we stick with Christ in the midst of our tribulations, the same will be true of us. He's going to orchestrate circumstances in our life, hard circumstances, in order to give us the opportunity to see his glory in a way that we would not otherwise. It usually doesn't happen in our way and in our timing, but if we walk with him by faith, he will use those trials in our lives to direct us to his glory to bring us closer to himself, to reveal things about himself that can only be revealed in the furnace of affliction. And if you think about the Christian life as a whole, isn't that what what God is doing? The big picture of the Christian life. He's using all of the trials and tribulations to direct us ultimately to his glory. Right? Isn't that what the new heavens and new earth is all about for the Christian, seeing his glory? So on the on the the micro level, each individual trial and tribulation is used that way. And then on the big picture level, to, to direct us to his glory. To illustrate this, listen to this quote from Johnny Erickson Tata. A lot of you know at least something about her. She was paralyzed from the shoulders down in a 1967 diving accident. She was diving into Chesapeake Bay, and she misjudged the depth of the water and ended up paralyzed from the shoulders down. And this is something she wrote in a little booklet a few years ago. She's talking about how part of her wish is that she could take her wheelchair with her to heaven, even though she knows theologically that's not accurate. But in some ways she wishes that she could take her wheelchair with her to heaven so that she could say this to Jesus when she gets there. Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble, because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. Right, And that's part of Jesus' glory right there, is his strength. She saw more of his glory. The harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. Now listen to this. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. She learned things about Christ. And she saw his glory in a way that she could not have seen had she not been paralyzed from the shoulders down in 1967. And she thanks God for it. So, if you find yourself in these days in the thick of a difficult circumstance, then cling to Christ. Because you know that he's allowing this in your life because he loves you, because he desires to strengthen your faith. And to show you his glory through whatever your particular bruising of the blessing is. In review, then, real quickly before we move on to the last one. So far, we've covered four lessons from John 11. One, Jesus is in control of our life circumstances. Two, Jesus' timing is not our timing. Three, his timing is motivated by his love. And fourthly, if we stick with Him in the midst of the trials, our faith will be strengthened and we will see the glory of God. And then lastly, the fifth lesson that I want to bring out from this portion of Scripture is this, that Jesus is not indifferent to our suffering in the midst of the trial. That Jesus is not indifferent to our suffering in the midst of the trial. You know, if we're not careful... We can get the wrong impression from this account, can't we? You know, after all, Jesus is just letting people die. He's glad about it. Coldly manipulating situations and people like pawns on a chessboard, you know. Martha's weeping. Mary's weeping. All these people are weeping. And Jesus just stoically marches to the tomb to raise him from the dead. Cold, unfeeling. Is that the way it was? Not even close. Not even close. Nothing could be further from the truth. Look again at verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled internal turmoil in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now Notice some of those phrases here. Verse 33, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Deeply moved. Same thing in verse 38. Jesus, again being deeply moved within. Not some kind of you're not putting on a show, it's talking about internal emotions deeply moved on the internal level. And then of course, the most amazing one, verse 35, two words: Jesus wept. And there in two words, you have literally a lifetime of meditation. Jesus wept. God. Wept, And he didn't just squeeze out a single, well-calculated tear in order to show everyone that, yes, he has some emotion, right? He wept. Yes, he will orchestrate trials and tribulations and suffering in your life. Yes, he does it for his own glory. He does it for your ultimate good. But he is not indifferent to the hurt that you feel as you go through it. He does not mock your tears. He joins them with his own. And if it seems too incredible to you for the ruler of the universe to sympathize like that, then remember what we said at the very beginning. Go back to those two things we said at the very beginning. Foundational principles. One, Jesus Christ is the brightest and clearest revelation to us of what God is like. And secondly, the Jesus of John 11 is the same Jesus who is seated right now on the throne of the universe. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he is not indifferent to our suffering. He's not indifferent to our pain in the midst of the trial. Amen.